What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. Fathers, we have read this passage of Scripture together. Lord, we would pray that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts this morning to hear and to understand what it is that you are teaching us, that you are revealing to us in your word. Lord, give us understanding, but Lord, also give us pliable hearts this morning, that our hearts would be good soil for the seed of your word to land in and to produce fruit in, in each of us. As James taught us a little bit earlier in this epistle, help us to be not only hearers of your word, but to be doers of it. So Lord, teach us now, instruct us, and use your word to transform us into the image of Christ, into people who are doers of your word. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So according to current data right now from the Pew Research Center, seven out of ten Americans identify as Christians. I mean, think about that. Out of every ten Americans you line up, randomly, seven of them identify as Christians, 70%. So that means that, again, every seven out of ten people that you see in our country should be following the Lord Jesus, should be obeying the Lord Jesus, should be living their life for the Lord Jesus. How many of you are buying that? I mean, would you believe that? That 70% that of Americans are following Christ and are Christians and are living for Him? It's hard for me to buy that. I think it's overstated for sure. What, what's going on with that? What's the deal with that? Well, the answer has got to be that there are many, many false professions in America as there are in other countries around the world. People who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, they would identify that way, but are actually, in fact, not believers. This sort of thing is not new. 
This has been going on for 2,000 years. There has always been a mixture of wheat and tares, or goats and sheep in the church. There have always been those who have said with their mouths, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, even though they were not. And here in the book of James, as we're getting a glimpse into life in the earliest church, the churches of the apostles, James is dealing with these realities, with people who are claiming to be Christians when in fact they are not. Now, James has been pastorally concerned in his letter with a type of Christianity that says the right things, that even goes through the motions, but is not bearing godly fruit. In chapter 1, verse 26, you'll remember that he, ta- he called that type of Christianity there worthless religion. That's not a positive statement. Worthless religion. And if you caught it here in our text this morning, he calls that sort of Christianity now, in verse 17, dead faith. In the sections before today's text, James has been making the case that after a person is born again, what should happen is it should result in a life of doing God's word. Last week, Ryan taught on the first half of chapter 2, where James began working out that principle in one specific example, his reader's wrong practice of showing partiality to the rich and the powerful. Well, now in our text today, in the second half of James chapter 2, James is returning to the main point itself, that true faith results in a life of obedience and good works. And in doing so, he's going to help us as Christians to see what saving faith actually looks like. And nothing can be more important than this, than for us to understand what it actually means to put faith in Jesus that saves. So what is saving faith? Well, the first thing that we see in our text is that a faith that saves is more than a profession. It's more than your words or saying that you're a Christian. Look at verses 14 through 17. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice he says, if someone says they have faith. The person that James is imagining here in this passage is a professing believer. It's somebody who is professing with their mouth, I'm a Christian, I have faith in Jesus, I'm a follower of Christ. But the problem, according to James, is that they're not coupling that profession of faith with corresponding good works, i.e. godly words, godly actions, godly attitudes in the heart. And James asks the question, can that kind of a faith save him? And his answer is no, that sort of a faith is dead. That sort of a faith is useless It's worthless, it's empty, it's nothing more than platitudes. To illustrate his point, he says, look, a faith like that 
is of no more value than telling a person who's in severe need of food and clothing, be warmed and be filled. I mean, think about that, that picture there. Of somebody walking by somebody in need, and this person is desperately in need of the bare necessities of life. They're in need of clothing. They're suffering from exposure. They're in need of food. They're hungry. And you walk by and you see the need and you say, be warmed and be filled. And maybe you do it with a smile because you're a Christian. Here's the question, church. Does that change anything for that person? When you walk by and you say, be warmed and be filled, does that change anything for the person in need? Does their body temperature suddenly rise by 10 degrees and, oh, I'm not cold anymore? Does their body automatically increase its daily caloric intake by 1,200 calories because of the words you said? Of course not. It does nothing to just say to that person, be warmed and be filled, but to not actually help them. It provides no actual benefit for them. In the same way what James is saying here is for the person who professes faith, the person who is all talk and no action, that sort of a faith provides no actual benefit for them. It does nothing. It doesn't change anything. And here's the, the really scary thought as we think about ourselves as a church and our witness to the world, is that not only does that type of a faith, all talk and no action, produce no benefit for the one who professes it, it also produces no benefit for the world that is watching us that God has called us to love. It produces no benefit for them. In fact, this is one of the most stinging rebukes of the church from our non-Christian neighbors, is that they look at the church and they say, look, from my perspective, the Christian church is all talk and no action. They feel like what we do is we talk all day long and we sing all day long about how much God loves them and loves us and how much we love them. But when push comes to shove, we're not actually doing anything to demonstrate our love. When a crisis hits, Christians all plaster social media with pray for such and such a city. And listen, prayer is powerful and prayer is the right and the best first response that we can have to crisis. But listen, it's not the only response. And in fact, what happens is when somebody's going through a hard time, if what we say to that person is, I'm praying for you, bro, but we don't actually do anything to alleviate their suffering, to help them out, to do something to minimize their suffering, if we don't follow up that I'm praying for you with practical, tangible, roll up our sleeves and get ourselves dirty kind of help, then I'll pray for you sounds like nothing more than an empty platitude. The world is often asking, where is the church on addressing things like poverty, systemic racism, quality education for inner city children, gun violence, protecting the environment, and many other social concerns. Now, to be sure, some of their criticism is misguided and uninformed because many Christians and many churches are doing great work in these arenas. But here's the problem. Many are not. Many professing Christians are all talk and no action. And on a personal level, friends, 
If I say, or, or if you say, I have faith, but we don't have corresponding godly words, actions, and attitudes, our faith, according to James, is as good as dead. Because listen, anyone can say, I'm a Christian. Don't hang your hat on that if that's where you're trusting in th that your faith is sincere. The faith that saves is more than a profession. But not only that, we see in the next couple of verses that a faith that saves is more than right ideas. This is going to get a little bit closer to true faith and therefore a little bit more dangerously deceptive. A faith that saves is more than right ideas. Look at verse 18. James says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, it's hard to know who the someone in verse 18 is referring to. But the point is, this someone is trying to drive a wedge between faith and works. The objector is basically saying, you know what, maybe it's not so crystal clear, James. Maybe it's that some people have faith and other people have works. And James' response is, no way. And he says, look, show me your faith then apart from your works. Okay, if some people can have faith apart from works, he says, show me your faith apart from your works. Now stop and think about that. What would someone point to in order to show someone else that they have faith if not for a transformed life? If, they, if they're not pointing at what God has actually done to change them as evidence of their faith, what would they point to? I would submit to you the answer is they'd probably try to point to the content of their faith. What I mean by that is they would say, well, I do have faith. I believe in this, and I believe in this, and I believe in this, and I believe in this. In verse 19, I believe there's one God. If they're professing to be a Christian, they'd follow that up with things like, I believe that Jesus is God's son. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he's going to come back again. They, they, would, they would point to the content of their alleged faith, and they would say, these are the things that I believe. And what's so incredible is that in verse 19, James acknowledges that a person can have proper theology and not be saved. Think about that. A person can have proper theology and not be saved. How do we know? Well, he points to the demons. And he says, the demons believe as much. Even they're wise enough to shudder, though. Did you know that Satan and the demons are not atheists? They're not agnostics either. Satan and the demons have very sound theology. In fact, they used to dwell in the very presence of Almighty God. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So they know without a shadow of a doubt that God is real. In fact, when Jesus was walking the earth, remember when he was casting out the demons from legion? And, and, and the demons are saying, what, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, son of the living God? The demons know who Jesus is. 
The, ge- the demons are aware that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus rose again. They know he's alive right now, ruling in heaven, and guess what? They shudder at the thought. They're terrified of Jesus because they know how it all is going to end. So they know these things, but they're not saved. Well, why not? Answer, saving faith is more than right ideas. It's more than checking off some theological or doctrinal boxes. Yep, Trinity got that one. Yep, Jesus is the Savior. God. It's more than checking off the boxes. The problem with the demons is not that they don't know the truth about Jesus. The problem is they don't respond to that truth in faith and trust. They don't embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. Instead, they resist him. Instead, they oppose him at every turn. See, you need to understand this morning. I need to be reminded this morning that saving faith is more than just believing the right things. It involves more than just the mind. Listen, it involves your heart. Romans 10 puts it this way in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there's the profession. So you're believing this and you're you're professing it. And he says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So saving faith involves your mind to be sure, but it involves the heart as well. It's not just believing the truth about who Jesus is, it's living in light of the truth of who he is and all that he's promised you. So yes, you're believing the truth about Jesus, but you're responding to that truth. You're you're living your life now in light of who he is and in light of his promises. In the 1800s, there was a world-famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. He was known as the Great Blondin. And he did some series of tricks where he was tightrope walking across the Niagara Gorge with the Niagara Falls. And when he was doing this in the 1800s, Okay, if you're young, this was before YouTube. Um, crowds would actually go out, yeah, outdoors in the sunshine. They just weren't watching this on their phones. They would go outside. The sun would touch their skin. They would feel the breeze. It's amazing. You should do it sometime. And these crowds would swell to some like 25,000 people that would gather there in upstate New York. And they would watch him perform these amazing tricks and tightrope across the Niagara Gorge. And so he started doing these variations on these theatrical variations on his tricks. And he would blindfold himself and walk across. It's 1,100 feet, by the way. And he would walk across blindfolded. He even did it on stilts. And one time he actually took a wheelbarrow and he pushed the wheelbarrow across the Niagara Gorge. And he goes across and he comes back. And the crowd, of course, like you and I would probably do, they're going nuts. This is amazing. So then he stops when the crowd gets a little quiet and he goes, how many of you guys believe that the great Blondin could go across the gorge with somebody in the wheelbarrow? Everybody goes nuts. Oh, we believe, we believe, we believe. And he says, can I have a volunteer? The crowd went silent. See, there's a profound difference between believing that something is true and actually entrusting yourself to it or responding in light of that belief. It's one thing to believe that Jesus is Lord, but it's quite another to place your life in his hands. 
And family, it is terrifying to think about how many people will populate hell who believed the right things with their minds but failed to embrace them with their heart. It's been well said that you can miss heaven by 18 inches. The difference between your brain and your heart. Jesus talked about this very thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this terrifying warning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, i.e., the one who responds to the truth of who I am and what I say. He says, on that day, many will say to me, not just a couple, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So these are people who are calling him Lord, people who are trying to even serve him. And here's what Jesus says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A faith that saves is more than right belief. It's, not, it's more than right ideas. So hopefully everybody's sitting there now going, okay, so what is saving faith? Help us out here. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad I asked for you. What is saving faith? We're going to pick this up from verses 20 through 26. A faith that saves is a faith that shows. James is going to bring up two Old Testament examples to prove his point. That a faith that saves is a faith that shows. Let's look at verse 20 and read through 26 again. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that apart from apart, excuse me, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Two examples. First, Father Abraham. James is going to go back to the father of the whole faith. To father Abraham, he couldn't have picked a more significant example to point his Jewish audience to, to make a point. He goes to Abraham. And he asks this question in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And again in verse 24 he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I see the, the apprehension on some faces right now. Everybody's getting very tense. And the reason for that is because on the surface, these statements, except, especially when I'm just reading them unqualified, these statements seem problematic because they seem to undermine the doctrine 
of justification by faith alone. The doctrine that you and I are made righteous, declared righteous before God on the basis of our trust in Jesus alone. The doctrine that you and I don't add anything to our salvation. We are not saved because of what we contribute or because of our goodness or our own righteousness. And you read these verses and you go, what meaneth these things? It seems like this is undermining that doctrine. And it's not surprising that many Christians have struggled to harmonize or struggled to understand how you would harmonize James's teaching with the teaching of Jesus and especially the teaching of the Apostle Paul. In fact, these verses are the reason that the great reformer Martin Luther called the book of James an epistle of straw. He just couldn't get his mind around how to reconcile verse 24 of James chapter 2 with Paul's teaching on justification by faith, which Paul teaches everywhere. Here's one example. Galatians 2.16. Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what do we make of these verses in James? Well, the word justified carries two meanings in the Bible. And so both of these meanings are used in various places. The first meaning, and this is the way that Paul uses the word justified in Galatians chapter 2, is in a judicial sense. It is being declared innocent or right or justified in a court of law. So the word picture of the word justified in this usage is the law court, and you are standing trial, and after the evidence has been presented, the verdict is declared by the judge, and the verdict is justified. Meaning you are righteous and you walk out scot-free. But the other meaning of the word justified, which is the older and in fact the more common meaning, meaning in the scriptures, is to vindicate or to prove someone's righteousness. So listen, this is really important. It's not about declaring a person righteous. Rather, it's about the demonstration of a person's righteousness. And justification is used this way in the New Testament in numerous places. I'll just give you one example for time's sake. In Luke chapter 7, verse 35, Jesus makes this, this comment where he says, Wisdom is justified by all her children. Or wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. His point is this. Wisdom is proven by what it produces. So you know, you can tell that that is wisdom based on the good things that it produces. And when you stop and think about it, this is the more common way that we use the word justified even today. Think, for example, of the expression... The, end, the ends justify the means. What do we mean when we say that? The ends justify the means. We don't mean that the ends declare righteous in a court of law the means. In fact, we're usually using that expression because the means are somewhat questionable. And so we'll say, even though the means are somewhat questionable, the ends justify the means. And what we mean by that is that Although the means are questionable, once we achieve the ends, it's going to prove that these means were right and worthwhile after all. 
It's a vindication or a proving sense. And this is the sense in which James is using the word justified. What he's suggesting, what he's arguing, is that works are the proof, or works are the the vindication of a person's faith, because true faith, saving faith, will always produce works. And we know from the text that this is the way that James is using the word justified. He mentions here the story of Abraham being willing to to offer his own son Isaac as a sacrifice to to the Lord. And he says that in this act, Abraham was justified. But then notice that according to verse 23, he says that it was in this act that the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So check this out. According to verse 23, the basis of Abraham's righteousness is faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And when you go back to Abraham's story, that's exactly what you find. The episode of Abraham sacrificing Isaac happens many years after God declares him righteous. It comes in Genesis 22. This is many years after Genesis 15 where we find the verse that James quotes here. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, God declared Abraham righteous because of his faith. And then the supreme act in Abraham's life in which his faith was vindicated or proven to be genuine was in his willingness to offer even his very own son through whom all of God's promises to him rested. And Abraham said, I am willing to offer him to you. That was the, the, the supreme proving ground that Abraham, in fact, had faith in God and was righteous. James' second example further reinforces this same point. He introduces this character, Rahab. Now, James could not have picked a more extreme opposite example from Abraham. Abraham was a man. Abraham was a Jew. Abraham was moral. Rahab was a female, a Gentile, and a prostitute. So you couldn't get just more opposite ends of the spectrum here. And the reason that James uses these two examples is because he's reinforcing the point that Ryan unpacked for us last week. God shows no partiality. The gospel is for everyone, and it works the same way for everyone. If you're an Abraham trying to come to God, and you kind of have a moral life, and you've got it together, don't think that's what you're going to offer to God to be saved. None of that matters. You're going to be saved by faith alone. But if on the other end of the spectrum... Your life is a mess. You came from the wrong side of the tracks. You've destroyed your life. You've been a notorious sinner. Those works don't disqualify you. God is still willing to save you, and it's not about your works. It's by faith in and through Jesus Christ. I love that. It's beautiful. The gospel is for everyone. Rahab's story is told for us in Joshua chapter 2. The backdrop for you is that Joshua was the leader of Israel at this time. And they were going into the promised land and they had to drive out their enemies. And he sends a couple of spies into a fortified city called Jericho. 
And he sent the spies in there to do some reconnaissance and figure out how can we attack, how can we win. And this girl, this woman, Rahab, this prostitute, takes the spies and she hides them on her rooftop so that way they will not be detected and she sends them out another way. She preserves these Jewish spies instead of turning them over to the authorities. And as a result, God spares her. The whole city gets destroyed, but her and her family are spared. But you need to understand that in the story, the way the story unfolds is that her works, these actions of taking the spies and saving them, flow out of her faith in the Lord. Joshua 2, verses 8 through 12. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Do you see her faith there? She had heard the reports about Yahweh. And she said, I believe that that God is Lord. I believe that that God is going to clean house here in Jericho. So I am about to get on the right side of history. I'm aligning myself with Yahweh the Lord and these Jewish people and turning my back on Jericho. She had put her faith in the Lord. And as a result, this great work of delivering the spies flowed out of it. So what is James teaching here? James is not contradicting that salvation is by faith alone. What James is teaching is that the faith that saves is a faith that shows. The proof of saving faith is not in our profession. It's not even in believing the right things or agreeing with a certain set of facts from the Bible. The proof is a new life that begins producing new fruit. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6 or Matthew 7. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then again in Matthew 13, 23, Jesus says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Different amounts of fruit, probably different types of fruit, but all of them are bearing fruit. A true believer will bear good fruit. It's inevitable. Just like if you take a seed and you cast that seed into the soil, contained in that seed that is buried underground is all of the genetic material that it needs to ultimately grow up into a tree that will bear 
fruit. It's not doing it yet. But that genetic material is there, and it is inevitable that 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 seed grows up into that tree and bears that fruit. In the same way, saving faith causes a new birth to happen in the heart of the person who believes, which inevitably will grow up into a life that bears good fruit. There is no stopping it. This is what happens. But here's the key. Like a seed, the beginning stages of life are hard to see. As that seed is first taking root, as the first signs of life and growth are unfolding, it's all happening underground, below the surface, invisible to the naked eye as we sit and look at our garden. And it often takes time to break out of the soil and to grow up into a large tree with this observable, beautiful fruit on it. John MacArthur said, salvation does not produce immediate perfection, but a new direction. A new direction. The idea is repentance. Repentance, this idea that you've changed your mind, you've turned away from what you used to think and how you used to live, and you've embraced Christ and his way of life. And initially, the evidence of that new life, this repentance, is happening on the inside. It's a shift in your desires. It's a shift in your affections. It's a shift in your allegiances. All of a sudden, you start realizing, I I love God now. And you start realizing, I'm beginning to hate sin. You start realizing that you have a deeper, more authentic love for people, both within the walls and outside of the walls of the church. You start realizing that you have these new desires you didn't have before. Desires for righteousness, desires for God's glory, desires for reading one particular book for the rest of your life, among other books. Desires for all of these new things. And then from there, it continues to show itself in more and more observable ways. But the bottom line is a faith that saves is a faith that shows. New life takes root and you begin bearing new, good, godly fruit. So as we close this morning, I wonder how you've walked into the church. I wonder where you're at in light of the teaching of James chapter 2. Are you bearing fruit in your life? Are you a Christian? Not just in the sense that you identify as a Christian or that you think Christianity is right, but in the sense that you've actually embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, that you've surrendered your life to him and you're actively following him and his way of life. If that's you this morning, rejoice, because that's the kind of faith that saves If you're not, if you've come in this morning and that's just not true of you, please know that Jesus is still offering you a seat in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) He's still offering you a seat. You need to know James is not writing this to condemn these believers, but to save these believers, these professors, these people that were filling the church. His whole point was, I want to show you the error of your ways and call you to saving faith. You need to know this morning that Jesus is inviting you into true life. Jesus is inviting you into life as it was meant to be lived. Life in him. And from all that's been said this morning, it should be clear that the most amazing part about that call into new life is that Jesus is not asking you to do anything to earn it or achieve it. He's asking you 
to receive it by faith. Well, don't I need to clean my life up before I can come to Jesus? No. It's been said Jesus cleans his fish after he catches them. Family, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. The same can be true for you this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it instructs us and teaches us. Thank you for the way that it corrects us. And thank you for the good news of the gospel that is contained in its pages. Lord, even in a text like this that talks about works and transformation and all of that, it ultimately is pointing to the reality that we are saved not by our works. We're saved by your grace and through faith, through trusting, through acknowledging that we don't bring the right things to the table, by acknowledging that we can't save ourselves, by embracing you as our Savior and trusting that you're the one who can remove our sins, that you're the one who can give us eternal life. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in this good news this morning. We celebrate it. We sing your praises as a result of it. And Lord, we would also pray that you would cause each one of us to continue bearing more and more fruit in our lives. Not so that we can somehow earn our salvation. It's certainly not about that. But so that we can continue to live the life that you've called us to live. Live life as it was meant to be lived. And demonstrate to the watching world around us that our God saves. That you truly do take dead people and bring them to life. That you truly do take broken people and bring healing. That you truly do take selfish people and turn them into selfless and caring and loving people. Because if that's true, that's compelling. That's what people are looking for. People are feeling empty. People are feeling dead. People are feeling broken. And we want, like Rahab, for them to be able to see in our lives and hear from our stories that there is a God in heaven who saves. So Lord, do this great work in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to continue to every day repent, turn back to you, turn back to you, turn back to you, trusting in you once again for new strength, to live out the Christian life. We love you, Jesus. We are so thankful to be your followers. And Father, we are so thankful to be your children. Thank you for granting that to us. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.